Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 91, Moral Universes, part two of two, recorded Thursday, July 28th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Chris, and Katrina. Hey listeners, Grant here. In case you somehow missed it, this is part two of an episode so long and so awesome, we had to split it into two parts. If you haven't heard the first half, back up and make sure you listen to part one. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of this massive, fantastic episode. Thanks. Okay, last thing I want to talk about uh, on these, and then we got a few other things we got to talk about on this amazing two-part episode we suddenly have. <laughs> um, mutability. Mm. It, and, and to a certain degree, consequence of action. Can these aspects of the moral universe that we've talked about so far change as a result of action by the protagonists, action by the antagonists? Are they mutable at all? I think this is in many ways, just a big setting decision. It is. But it's also a huge narrative aspect. It is. I'm having, I'm having trouble thinking of a situation where the, the fundamental aspects of a moral universe change. Because typically when you see that happen in fiction, it happens in mythical time. Like, this makes me think of... Like in a, in a religion, you can have decisive events in the mythology of the religion that change the moral landscape. Like different things are possible now. That mm-hmm. would be that would be very high level gaming. Do you know what I, like not level necessarily in D twenty terms, but like you'd be playing the central character of your reality almost to make that kind of decision. I mean, in Christianity, this is the the tearing of the temple veil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes, that's that's the kind of moment we're talking about here, which is pretty darn central oh yeah oh or you know the cross is a very significant the most significant moment in history um and that changes how the world works you know the, the 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 existence of that moment i'm thinking in a more heroic sort of sense here you know in a game something like uh the forgotten realms hmm where Gods get overthrown and the universe changes as a result. Nerol, for example, a chaotic evil death god, gets replaced with Kelimvor, who's lawful neutral. Well, that has some significant cosmological consequences. And, and leans lawful good, if we're going to be honest about it. Well, yes, because it's a human and he tends to be a little more character than Nerol, who was just a villain in the setting. Yeah. It makes me think you know, of Exalted um, almost immediately. Like, if you wanted to explore that idea of fundamentally changing the moral character of a universe, it feels like Exalted is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, you could you could have that be your quest. Like, your Exalt could be, I am going to change the way good works in the universe. That is what I am about. Right. And you could actually do it. And that would be fascinating. Let me throw you another one. And I've had to watch this because I have a four-year-old daughter. The Care Bears movie. Ah. <laughs> All right. Wait, what? Okay, okay bear with me. <laughs> the I see what you did there. The Care, Bears, <laughs> the Care Bears movie is a story of this kid magician who basically opens up a book. I don't think I'm spoiling anything for our audience here. <laughs> I saw the Care Bears movie. Um, you know, they open opens up a book and there's this evil 
somewhat androgynous sorceress in there, you know, the, this head that kind of is like, hey, here's how to do magic. And it turns, you know, this kid evil. But as a result of it, she's literally wiping caring out of the world. Hmm. Right. And you see the stakes ratchet up as a result of what the antagonist is doing throughout the movie. It gets harder and harder for the protagonists. Again, we're getting back to that stakes thing because there is less and less good and caring in the universe. Yeah. This, okay. So, and I'm familiar with this happening to me because I'm from the Gameable podcast. Your silly cartoon has has brought me down a path, a train of thought. I think this is a really like delicate and interesting point, actually, for moral storytelling. Because what you're describing is a situation, you have a, a moral universe being implied here, where what we're talking about when we talk about morality and virtue is a thing that exists in its instances in mm-hmm. this universe. And that is what matters. And if you diminish those instances, then you are effectively destroying, you know, goodness, which in this case would be like caring, right? That's like the cardinal virtue of this universe. Right. It is, in a, in a sense, sympathetic magic where you're doing one thing and through sympathy affecting all of the universe. Yes, because the whole universe is essentially the sum of these moral instances within it. Now, this is distinct from a moral universe where some kind of virtue exists abstractly. And so there's right. no way we could destroy good because good is a principle. It's an abstract and so even if nobody does it, it's still there to be done. And that, to me, weirdly, that is more the like moral absolute universe. That is more the universe that has the definite moral compass where there is good and there is evil. And even if everybody's wrong, everybody's wrong. Good is still good and it is still there to be done. If you contrast that with, let's say, a noir universe where there's nobody in the cosmos looking out for you, the good that exists is the good that we do and that's it. Then if you convince everybody not to do good, you've killed good. And... And that is a universe where the stakes on instances are much higher because we're not talking about cosmic warfare. If we can kill or convince every good person to our way of thinking, we've won. Evil has won and good is exterminated. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy it. Um, I, I think the I, I still like the idea that you can threaten this, mm-hmm. right, and make maintaining the status quo a major character thing. I mean, very often – the protagonist's job is to keep the antagonist from doing whatever they're doing and restore things as they were, mm-hmm. at least, you know, in, in a, a larger sense. Obviously, the character has changed, but the world is back to normal. To connect to another silly um, cartoon, I, is, uh, I was going to say, this is a lot like Sailor Moon, um, where you constantly have a cardian or some monster comes out with, like, here's my thing which steals all the energy. And this little chunk of the world is now um, full of grumpy zombie people who are out to get Sailor Moon. And what she has to do is restore the status quo and then stop the influence. You sort of have that same thing going on where there's, in these instances, what is necessary is gone. This energy has been stolen, but it can go back. And if it's allowed to continue, if it isn't interrupted, it will spread and it will change the fabric of of the world. It's telling that the, you know, thing she yells as she does, you know, the classic Sentai, here's the super move that, you know, solves the problem and beats the monster is usually something like refresh. Refresh, moon healing, escalation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always something about restoration. Like, here is the, you know, what do what does Sailor Moon zap you with? Hearts. 
and lights and things that put you back the way you were and that banishes this influence that is removing that from the universe it stops a drain it doesn't necessarily add it just stops a drain and restores and and that's the other thing the other uh, possibility here is that you have to make a change in the universe in order to resolve the plot. Mm. You know, I have to change something. Everybody has to clap, believe in fairies, you know, that kind of thing. Everybody has to, we have to make a collective change in the consciousness in order for it to be possible to accomplish something, you know, may, probably at a cosmic level. But I have to convince the world that this is true and make it so. So that I can then beat the dark god forever or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that becomes the penultimate climax, making the final climax possible. Yeah, the, you know you know what your system is to do that story, which I would love to do, is uh, Mage the Ascension. Mm. Because, uh, yes. this, and this is the, the, the very deepest cut of which I'm capable. <laughs> there is a, a discussion I once read on an old Usenet forum for Mage the Ascension. Uh, that was basically like an open challenge to like a mage with one paradigm will do this thing. And then other mages of other paradigms have to do it in their own way, you know, to show the difference of paradigms of, of mages in the Ascension. And one of the issues that came up was like a celestial chorister or somebody that's like basically the sort of more or less Judeo-Christian or, or Abrahamic religion version of a mage. Angel Monotheistic mage. religion, yeah. Um, come Right. Uh, not always as somebody who played a chorister. Yeah. Uh, not always necessarily from that Judeo-Christian background, but despite their best efforts to make it not that and make it more universal, that was the fundamental core of that character. Yeah. Type. Yes. So anyway, they come up with this, uh, one of them came up with this bell that you ring that inspires love, basically. And the hmm. virtual adept who is trying to match this feat is unable to and basically says, it's not a flaw in my paradigm. As a, as a tradition, as a, as a magic user, it's a flaw in like my personal paradigm. Like I don't believe in the kind of love you're talking about. And so for me, that's not possible. I can't do that. Like it would be mind control if I did it because I just don't believe in the kind of love that you believe in. You believe in divine love. And so you can create this magical effect that like inspires it. And then that's fine. So that's a perfect example of where, and because of the weird mechanics of mage, you can even do this mechanically. What is possible in one belief system is is not possible in another, and you can fight over belief systems. So it would be possible to do exactly what you're describing, Grant, and and have a campaign where the that penultimate step is actually changing reality to conform to an ideology within which your final victory is possible. And I will tell you that in our mage game, we did that three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> I love mage so much. Mage is fantastic, especially when the GM's like, how much XP are we supposed to give out each session? Like one or two? Eh, eight per session seems fine. <laughs> Let's make sure the campaign goes three years. I didn't like reality anyway. <laughs> reality was... Mutable is not the word. Porous? <laughs> My character had, I think, three or four spheres at five. Whoa. Plastic? Reality was plastic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no kidding. It was very silly. Uh, it was a fantastic campaign. I learned it a ton. Uh, and I haven't even, I don't think I've even told the music story from that campaign on this show. I'll have to spend some time doing that at some point because it's long. Um, well, if we ever do an episode about music. It was amazing. All right. So let's let's move on a, a little bit here and kind of try and wrap this up. Talking about challenges and opportunities in doing this at all. Okay. I think the first thing <laughs> is 
you have to decide how didactic you're going to be as a GM. Mm. And get appropriate levels of buy-in. Because, okay, out of fairness, we appear to have a difference of opinion here. One group uh, put avoid didactism, and the other responded with, or perhaps don't if the group is on board. So let's go with the pros and cons of both here, because we're already on a two-parter, and why not? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I was just going to ask, do we want to do pros or do we want to do cons first? You do your side first, whatever that is. Um, Well, and I don't know if Katrina agrees with me at all. We may have three sides here. Who knows? But... um, uh, my, feeling, <laughs> my feeling is <laughs> that typically a didactic approach in a game um, doesn't work well. I think that if you all already think the same thing, that you're going to be fine. And probably this kind of, it, it can quickly devolve into like rah, rah, go us, um, which is maybe not the most uh, enjoyable style of game. Like maybe let's move beyond that and do something else. If we don't all agree, then of course a didactic game is going to be a failure with the GM trying to teach other players the error of their ways morally. I think it's fine to all agree, but I would avoid a situation where, and again, we've harped on this in our show, but to bring it up once more, this makes me think of Atlas Shrugged, which is basically a very long, unpersuasive argument by the author that her way of thinking is best. And all of the characters and situations are rigged as evidence to try to prove that. That is what a bad didactic campaign looks like. Right. Okay. I actually tend to agree with you in that uh, didacticism doesn't tend to work well at the table because your players get fractious. You start having arguments at the table Mm -hmm. rather than saying, okay, here's a situation. and, And I think this is more than anything good GMing. And I'm approaching this from a GM, Jim's perspective, obviously. Rather than saying, this is the way it is, and arguing about it above all the character sheets, say, all right, here's a problem. And letting the players work it out in character seems so much more interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but I I think that that's kind of a form of didactism. Uh, Whereas the the lesson that you're attempting to... Real quick, hang on. <laughs> let's let's define this because we've gotten dinged for using vocabulary words and not defining them, and this is definitely one of them. So, okay, the the definition of didactic that I get when I punch it into Google because that's the most convenient resource that I have at hand is adjective intended to teach, particularly in having moral instruction as an ulterior motive, or in the manner of a teacher, particularly so as to treat someone in a patronizing way. So, in this particular case, the the lesson that I think that you can tr- you can teach with this effectively and it would still be instructive and thereby didactic is this stuff is important this stuff is worth thinking deeply about mm-hmm. don't just treat these things casually when you come to these things don't be a murder hobo dig in and actually figure out what's right right and i think you can rig it so that there are consequences that kind of teach your players and characters what the rules and what's right and wrong in this setting are. I mean, that's fundamentally what we've been talking about. Is right. Establishing a moral universe where decisions have certain types of consequences. And I, I, I think what you and Chris were probably talking about is you absolutely should not use it as a way of trying to impose your own worldview on the rest of the people at the table because everybody will be miserable. Yes. But if you're, if you're trying to teach the lesson that this stuff is actually worth talking about, thinking about, telling stories about, then I think you're on pretty solid ground. And I will say a a group vote 
for morality is not necessarily any less didactic. Yeah. No. You know, uh, what this makes me think of is, you know, something, a didactic project is necessarily educational, but an educational project is not necessarily didactic. And you can have a game Mm -hmm. that is an exploration in which we intend to learn something without the assumption that one of us already knows the answer. And that's a great way to explore these issues in gaming because, especially from a player's perspective, you can create a character who is in a really interesting, like, kind of gritty, um, thorny situation, and you're throwing that up for everybody else to interact with, and you're hoping to kind of learn something about how a character deals with something like this. But nobody yet knows the answer, or maybe somebody does, but we don't know that. It's just, we're all going to find out together. And that is not at all didactic, but it's exactly what Peter is talking about, which is, this is not just for laughs, this is not just blow it off, you know, that which is, that's a fine way to game, but what I want to do with this character is, like, really dig in. Um, that's, I mean, I wrote a whole game about kind of vampirism as a, as a metaphor for different kinds of, like, addiction and dependency and compulsion that people can have, because it's something I wanted to explore in gaming, and without the intention of going into it with a predetermined answer. And to me, that's, yeah, that's, that's totally worthwhile. Okay. And I think that also relates to a contract that you have to have with the players. 100%. I will say, to kind of comment on this idea of how didactic do you want to be, I think that figuring out, like, how, do, how didactic do we want to be as a group? And how didactic do we want our kind of in-character elements to be? I was thinking about this idea of if you have objective right and wrong in your moral universe, in the game that you're playing, then you've got to have some didactic elements. You've got to have something that's going to make that accessible and teach that to the characters (laughs) and figuring out exactly how to implement those appropriately in a way that isn't going to be um, either distracting or so patronizing no one wants to listen to you anymore is going to be kind of a fun GM puzzle. Like, how do I want to have characters brush up against this information and learn it is kind of an interesting, it's a didactic puzzle. And it's also a GM puzzle for how can I have a good NPC to reveal this information or a situation that brings this information about the moral character of the universe to light. I think what you don't want to do is the Saturday morning thing of, well, what's this week's lesson? Mm -hmm. Wheel of morality. Turn, turn, turn. (laughs) Tell us the lesson we were supposed to learn. (laughs) <laughs> like there you like go. the stuff that the He-Man characters were yeah. talking oh, about in here. <laughs> oh yeah. Every time to- every episode ends with so here's your lesson in case you missed it this Sailor week. Sailor Moon says. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. <laughs> I-, I think if you if you find yourself doing that, you're probably a little too on the nose. Or it might be I just mean, right if you're playing too, but it otherwise probably not. Yeah. And you know, there are always going to be exceptions to Yeah, but to who wants like to this. play Captain Planet with Toon? <laughs> <laughs> Me. Okay, fair enough, but... Look, I that was the show I pretty much grew up with, so... Yes, right here. This guy. <laughs> okay. This no, guy. No, that's, that's fair. <laughs> There's a reason I signed up for that one for a Saturday Yeah, I was going to say, no, no spoilers for a gameable Saturday morning episode about Captain Planet. It's coming. And Grant, you will be there. Eventually, but after Exo Squad, because I'll have to watch six seasons of that, and... Oh... Ooh. See, this is why I volunteered for the ones that I volunteered for, because one's nearly impossible to find, and the other one I'm looking for an excuse to rewatch. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Look, I watched all of Exo Squad, and that was great. It's actually got a plot. <laughs> all right, digressions yes. aside, when we're talking about the challenges here and, and opportunities, I think focusing on the negative 
you know, uh, focusing constantly on these are your character's sins in certain games might work, but generally because we are talking about a, a game and those characters are usually protagonists who grow and change, focusing on that growth and change is your better approach. Yes. 100%. I think of it almost like um, treasure in a game. Like, you know, we've only got so much gold and we've got as much poverty as we can stand, but the game is about the gold. We're going to go out there and we're going to get it wherever we can. And the less of it there is, in fact, oftentimes the more the game is about the gold. And if Mm. you think of the good you can do as the gold, as the treasure, that's the focus you want to take. Because even if we're in a very dark world, um, we're going to focus on what we can achieve, what we can do, the times when we can get it right. And I think that really helps buoy players' spirits in a game where bad things happen. I I think we just discovered the motivation of our Shadowrun party. Uh, Well, we didn't just discover it. That was the motivation from the get-go, is let's try and focus on the positive of being criminals. (laughs) I think we just codified, perhaps, the motivation (laughs) of our Shadowrun party. Right. Let's focus on the positive of being criminals. (laughs) No, that was largely that game was, look, we can have fun doing this. We can make the world right. a little better doing this. We're still going to do this, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Oh, Shadowrun. It's, it's, it's great when you can achieve that, and it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, Shadowrun or whatever it is, but you can also see it's only a small kind of tonal shift to a game that is unrelentingly dark, where maybe the same things happen, but the focus is we're these, you know, bright-eyed people who want to do good things, and every session is about constantly being unable to and being reminded by the GM of how much we've screwed it up the bad things we had to do. And, you know, it feels like a constant beatdown from the GM because you're really focused on the negative. And this is where Peter and I exchange meaningful glances over the internet, <laughs> look back at the character sheets from our first Shadowrun game, <laughs> and nod. Because we, we had a, uh, yes. a game like that where it was very... It, it was a... The GM was trying his best. Like, mm. He was not being cruel. He was not being malicious. He was just very adversarial. Mm-hmm in his style. Yeah. And he was trying for a bit more was... grit than actually worked in the system, I think. Yeah. And everything was like, all of your decisions were probably going to be wrong. Not because he was cheating, not because he was, you know, hiding dice or doing anything like that. It was just, no, the, the world is against you. Yeah. And, and on some it, level, there really weren't any right choices either. So right. To the point where it got in the way of actually progressing the plot. That's that's too far. To stick with our treasure metaphor for a minute, there can be a lot of dross in the universe, but if you make your characters carry all of it all the time, then they're just going to lay down. They're not going to want to keep going after the treasure. It's just too much. Right. Yeah. And as a quick aside, to this GM's credit, when we pointed this out, he changed some of those things, but... It was kind of a, a constant issue in that first iteration of the Shadowrun game. Mm-hmm. You've written down something here that I think is really interesting. Invite players to judge their characters. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, we sometimes forget that we're players, but we're also an audience, you know, whether we're GMs or we're playing a character. And that's really where a lot of the meaning is. Like, we're who we're doing this for. And when you're doing moral storytelling, particularly it's important to engage that. Like, you might as well not bother if all of it is just going to pass right through. Like, okay, so that guy did that, that guy did that, who cares? 
Um, so it's important, I think, to to bring the players in to discuss like what do we think about what this character is doing? What do we like? Is this acceptable? Is this moral? How do we feel about this? Especially because if you invite players to do that about their own characters, it I think implicitly opens up the possibility that like you can have fun playing a character with a sense of dramatic irony where you know that your character is making a mistake, but it's part of the fun of playing the character. Like I, I know I've personally enjoyed whether I've played, you know, good or evil characters, giving them character flaws that I can kind of enjoy those moments of triumph, but then they also have those moments where I know what they should do, but I really want to have the moment where we all judge my character for getting it wrong because we know he's got a problem with this particular issue. Hmm. And I think even if it's not something that is real fun for you initially, if you're, it's important to avoid becoming laissez-faire. It's important to become to avoid becoming hands-off if you're going to do moral st- storytelling because then it just is going to lack impact. If you start to be like, yeah... That was a totally reprehensible thing, but it's all pretend. Who cares? If you're not going to have a little bit of investment in that and have the kind of, like, dude, you did wrong. I know you did wrong. Or, like, the character did, like, and have that moment of, yeah, I'm going to, that's a thing that happened. And and then play with that. Use that. Go ahead and say, yeah, that was that was not the right move. And what does that mean going forward? I know, um... Chris has watched me strenuously like, no, what have I done with some characters and and have to decide, well, what do I do going forward? Like, my character really did something wrong. Like, and I know it and they know it and all the other characters know it. And what do I do going forward? And that's really not, it's not always my idea of fun, but it's definitely challenging and it definitely engages you in the moral story. It engages you in where is this character growing? Where is this character failing? And what can I look for? Like, are they um, are they on a path that I'm excited to see them follow through or not? And is it a winning or losing path? Because both can be interesting and both can be fun to find out where they're going. I'll, I'll tell you, and I have a quick anecdote about this because it's one of the most memorable moments from a long-running vampire campaign that I did. Uh, there was a woman playing a character who had a ghoul who had basically who had, who had fallen in love with her. It had gone from a blood bond to like real in love. He ended up becoming a vampire later in the campaign. And was still in love with her and was like trying to change it from like a servant master relationship to love. And she did not have that feeling for him. And he was badly disturbed and was basically didn't want to continue to exist if they weren't going to be together. And that was inconvenient for her. And so instead of getting him help, she basically let him kill himself um, to get him out of the way. And the whole table knew that was a reprehensible thing to do. And... It was nothing against the player, but I think that moment of judging her character, like she was always kind of like shallow and selfish, but that act was really over the line. But not for the group and not for the player. It was fine. But for the character, it was like, we can never really forgive this character for doing this. But that's clearly a wrong thing. It's selfishness taken to an extreme that is like beyond the pale. And that's a powerful Even for vampires. Moment. Yeah, exactly. And you can't have that if we're just going to ignore the moral ramifications of characters' actions, or if we're just not going to comment on what other player characters do. You really need that moment of, like, censure right. from the players. The one right. thing that I will add as a cautionary note to this, because 
we have talked to Sarah Lynn Bowman and we know that bleed is a thing mm -hmm. is be careful not to let the accountability from this follow the player too far away from the table. Oh, no, no, no. Yes. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you did a bad thing in game. So now you're a bad person. No, no, that's not how this works. Absolutely. And right. having, I think having the player judge their own character actually helps prevent that because mm -hmm. having the, having the player step forward and say, okay, you guys, I know you're going to hate my character for this, but you know that she's, selfish she's she's awful she's the worst and that this is what she's going to do and then the whole table is like oh my god that helps separate player and character and conversely if you can tell that a player is not separating themselves if they're doing something because they feel like that's what they would do then you know that not to start with this like round of haranguing you know because you know you're now dealing with like person stuff like person morality we're not going to be like harsh and you know throw stuff about that yeah on the Flip side, I think the opportunity for heroism, as opposed to this sort of cruelty and awfulness, it, those hooray moments are really powerful. Yeah. Oh, you got to celebrate the bejesus yeah. out of them, like confetti and streamers and have a parade, especially in your universes where it's tough. Like, yes. like cake and ribbons <laughs> and bows, do the whole nine yards. Yeah, you're right. Because they are rare, they should be celebrated more in those settings where... It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's an example I have here in the outline, actually. The, the one that is most striking to me, which I think its power is attested by the fact that it comes to mind before any of the campaigns I've actually been in, where I've had a, a great a lot of moments like this. But the one that comes to mind is RPPR's um, No Evil campaign. That was an Eclipse Phase actual play campaign. And it was, I mean, the, the very deepest moral gray you can imagine, I think. But there was a moment when kind of out of the blue. They had this great like um, contact who was sort of like their quest giver. It's hard to explain in Eclipse Face, but basically their quest giving AI was using lyrics from David Bowie songs to communicate with them. Like that was their like spy code. And mm -hmm. out of the blue, they had this moment when they got to do something unequivocally heroic and save a lot of people. And the Bowie bot contacted them with, we can be heroes. And they went and did the thing. And it was just this, this triumphant moment of like, that's why we make all these compromises. That's why we do all these hard things is because at the end of the day, it's about helping people. And we did that today. That's fantastic. And in a lot of ways, that is the payoff for the, the bleak moral universe. When you're the only light in that universe, when you really get to shine, that's, that's something. Yeah, that is very cool. Also, so is an AI communicating with David Bowie lyrics. <laughs> oh, man. That's also very cool. <laughs> the No Evil campaign has a lot of cool in it. Nice. I will have to listen to that at some point. I mean, in fairness, the D&D campaign I've talked about that we're gearing up for is directly inspired by their New World campaign. Mm. So, Also good. Yeah. Hey, if you're going to do colonization game, go to the source, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Deferred karmic rewards and deferred karmic punishments. Oh, those are fun. Ultimately, we're talking about building anticipation. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually just read uh, Hamlet's Hit Points on vacation. And you know, talking about anticipation, building up that anticipation is a big part of what Robin DeLaws talks about in that book. Or just in you general. Also, well, yes, but it, that book in particular because it's talking about story beats. And uh, good book, by the way. Highly recommended. Um, on the list. The idea that no matter what you do, it's eventually going to come back to you, positively or negatively, and you can have that written down as like, hey, this is a thing that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Here it comes. Here it comes. But you don't know when or yeah. where. That can be powerful. Uh, I think we see this a lot in superhero stories where 
the one flaw, the one mistake that the superhero made eventually comes back around and they have to deal with it again. Yes. Well, on the good side, the other thing that comes to mind is it's a wonderful life. This guy makes all these compromises against what he wants to help other people and kind of gets more and more depressed as the movie goes on. And then at the end, when he's truly in a jam, everybody pulls together and gets him out of it and then some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like this because it, it especially again, this presumes that you're going to have a moral universe that is basically karmic, right? When you do good, good is going to come mm, back to you. Right. And when you're doing that, yes, that's the when assumption. you're doing that kind of, of game in, in that kind of moral universe, it's easy for that to become sort of like predictable and feel like, you know, you're using the karmic vending machine. You know, I'm going to do this good deed and then I'm going to get bonuses for whatever. And that is not very satisfying and it doesn't feel like moral action. But when it's deferred, not only is it more, it builds anticipation, it allows you to craft the story more effectively, and it's not such a simple one-to-one. It is, it expresses the belief, the sort of faith that you have to have to live a certain kind of moral life where it's like, I know this way is better and it doesn't have to pay off right away, but I know this is the better path and I'm going to take it and then eventually that belief is going to be borne out by events that happen later. And so that kind of takes you through the dark times. You know, you you know that's on the table. You know that karmic payoff is coming and you're waiting for it. I think that feels more like living a life in in faith in something. Um, so it makes for a better story and um, and it's, it's more satisfying in the end. And I think you can do this mechanically. Mm-hmm. First of all, fate is largely a karmic system. Yeah. You take a negative hit up front in order to be awesome later but when you broaden that window a little bit you can say hey you know here's some bad stuff that's happened and the gm can write this down give a player a chit for it and say all right something terrible's happened to you here's something you can cash in later or okay here's all this stuff that's built up here it all comes back you can have the player call it in if it's a mechanic but i think i think the the surprise is often more rewarding I tend to agree. I think that it would be really fun to be in a game where everyone has like some number of skeletons in their closet that are going to come for them and also a certain number of like, I don't know, angels in their closet that are going to come for them and they don't know when mm-hmm. that's going to happen and they're constantly trying to like add good things to their closet or not put too many skeletons in their closet because they know it all counts and they have no idea when it's coming. That that has a lot of a lot of inborn tension. And it's also kind of just fun. It's fun to be surprised. And it's also fun to feel like, you know, I could have a streak of good luck or I could have a really bad run. But I know that it's not just whim and it's not just, I I know it's not endless. Like there are other things in there because I've done both good and bad things. And that sense that there's more coming and you don't know exactly how it'll go, but you have a sense of what's coming. It's, it's really interesting. It's a really fun place to be. Oh, yeah. That moment of, oh, well, this will come back to bite yeah. us. Mm-hmm. That immediately is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the times when you do some very kind of casual act of goodness and it comes back in a big way later. So rewarding. Because that person remembers. Right. Now, again, that investment thing is a danger. I've talked before on the show a, a long time ago about the, the really annoying thing that a lot of JRPGs have, uh, especially early ones where, oh, you have an opportunity to give away a certain amount of money. Always do that <laughs> because it is guaranteed that you will get that money back with interest 
at a time when you need it. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's built in. At no point is there genuine charity in a console RPG. <laughs> That's yeah. rough. <laughs> you always get something. Yeah, and to elaborate on what I was saying before, the other person might remember, but I think it's probably best to save those things until the player characters have forgotten. Oh, yeah. You know, th- this, yeah. Is, this is good that you did, and you have moved on, and you have done a whole bunch of other things. This is, you know, this is some insignificant person that you just, some peasant that you happen to save from something way back when you were first level and you're 17th level now. And this person has gained an influence, but you haven't been back there, so you didn't know about it. And they've never forgotten, even though you don't even possibly even remember their name anymore. Mm -hmm. And now you're in a jam and they're going to come back and help you. And they're going to be like, hey, remember me? And they're going to be like, honestly, no. And it'll be, well, you saved my life back at, you know, blah, 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 blah. But if, if they remember and they're tracking it, then it loses the impact. Mm-hmm. Because then it is just, it's a it's transactional, like Grant was talking about. Yeah. If yeah. it's a surprise, then it's interesting. Transactional is a great word for it, I think, because that's distinct from what I think can be a very um, acceptable sense that if we do the right thing, things will ultimately go well for us in a generalized way. Again, this makes me think of, um, you know, biblically, it makes me think of the Psalms. Sometimes you do get that sense from the psalmist that because... We are because we have been righteous, because we've done the right thing, we've put our trust in God, we know He's going to come through ultimately for yeah. us. I think it's acceptable for player characters in that moral universe to have that sense, but it's not because I helped Joe. Now I've planted the seeds, and Joe's going to be there with an axe when I need to fight my way through the orcs. It's mm-hmm. because I've done right. a lot, I've done the right thing consistently, I've followed the right path. I believe that that will bear fruit ultimately. Yeah, there there are there are 10,000 Joes back there and maybe at some point when I'm really in a jam one of them will step forward and do something. Mm-hmm. But even yeah. if even if they don't and even if they can't, I'm still going to do it because Joe needed it. Yeah. One of the peripheral benefits of this kind of karmic universe is that it kind of lets PCs decide to be agents of karma sometimes. Yes. Which is really fun. Like I know that that's been it's a double-edged sword because it means that your player characters, because someone's, because they have the sense of the universe when they do good, good comes back to them. It sort of encourages them to do that same thing. I know in our Pathfinder game, there's a family that our party is dedicated to because we were once stranded in the desert and they saved our lives. And so now when they're in trouble, we are there. We are there for everything for them. We're on it. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of like our own, us being that agent of karma. And also it means that characters that have done wrong by us well we're 15th level now <laughs> and it's we're back sometimes it's not pretty when joe comes back sometimes it's not pretty when joe yeah. comes back and it, it's kind of fun to sometimes be that person to be the one who like shows up on your doorstep like you helped me when i needed help and now i get to help you or you were a complete pain in the neck and now i'm here to burn down your town mm-hmm. so depending on <laughs> what's going on yeah You know what comes to mind here from, I guess, me being the media reference person? The whole Arl Eamon plot in Dragon Age Origins. He hasn't particularly been... You're acting as karma not necessarily for anything that he's necessarily done for or to you. But you know from interacting with a bunch of other characters in the game that this is a genuinely good person in a world that is usually fairly gray. And now he's in a real horrible jam and you can do something about it. And I remember Hmm. when I was playing that game for the first time and I came across that situation, not even really exaggerating with the way that it played out in the game, I basically bent reality to my will to make sure that he came out to a good end out of that situation. (laughs) 
And it was really difficult, and I, like, went and handled, like, a whole other leg of the story just in order to get the people that I needed to help me with it. And in most other games that I've played, I would have resented that, and I was just like, oh, man, I'm doing this whole other leg of the plot just so I can go back and help this other guy because he's a really good dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're starting to run long mm-hmm. even for a two-parter, yes. so <laughs> I'm going to move us good ahead. Idea. Try and wrap this up here. We do have a couple more things to talk about, and I think one that I is going to be an easy one to overlook is moral choice and all of these decisions, kind of everything we've talked about being a litmus test for defining a character as a player character instead of a general character in your setting. Yeah. So, and I think, I guess what we're talking about here is like, there is this one thing that is good. That is the thing that defines goodness. Making that into like, you must be this courageous or you must be this charitable to be a player character. Right. right? If, if we're talking about, say, He-Man, mm-hmm. right, to go back to our first gameable Saturday morning episode, I think it's safe to say that all of the protagonists have a certain level of courage. Yeah. I mean, other than Orko, maybe, Cur- but I mean, protagonist would be a stretch for Orko. Yeah. Well, right. That's the thing. All the protagonist characters, all the PC characters are courageous and powerful. You know, I get that it's about power, but that's kind of the other defining trait is they're all courageous, heroic people. Anybody else in that setting seems to lack that. Yeah. It's really embodied by Cringer, you know, the green tiger. When he's in hero mode, he's not afraid of anything. When he's not in hero mode, he's afraid of everything. He kind of is the the extreme specimen of, Mm -hmm. are you a hero or aren't you? Are you brave or not? And that's that's it's very yes or no in that in that universe. Right. And I got to say, that's boring. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's especially boring, like the narrower your litmus test is, because it's sort of I mean, as you were saying before, you know, courage is kind of a, a an all purpose or a, a general virtue in some ways. There are other stories where virtue is something uh, much more specific. It can be like, again, a specific political leaning or it can be like upper like absolute fearlessness or something like that. Like it's very narrowly defined. And it's frustrating in stories like that where every person we would consider a player character, every protagonist, is just this paragon of that virtue. It does tend to homogenize the characters a lot, and it leaves no room to really talk about the thing that's supposedly central to your world because everybody who's a player character is perfect at it. Um, It's much more effective to say, okay, well, this is the cardinal virtue, right? So this is courage is the thing. Then we're going to have player characters who all have some meaningful relationship to courage. And we can go from there. You know, they don't all have to be great at it. Maybe one of them is like, has everything else, but is lacking courage. And that can be their story. Uh, Maybe one character is very courageous most of the time, but does have this one drawback. I just finished reading uh, Orlando Furioso, where we have Orlando, who's a great paladin. He's good at war, but he's bad at love. So bad. (laughs) Ultimately, it is the love of a woman that kind of pulls him away from like chivalry and the protection of Christendom and all that good stuff. And yeah, so we all sort of have that relationship. Then we can talk about that virtue. Right. That flaw idea that we talked about earlier, what knocks you off the the straight and narrow Mm -hmm. path? Well, and it's worth mentioning that people can do this kind of unconsciously as part of the role-playing experience. I myself ran into this with the other two player characters just last week when we were doing character creation for the D&D game. Both of the other players created these kind of hard-bitten survivor type of characters, and I had gone through and made somebody who was very 
Very neutral, good cleric. Yeah, I mean, just very kind and centered and not with a lot of issues and stuff. And I looked at the other two player characters and I was like, I have clearly made the wrong (laughs) character for this game. And I had to be talked out of that by Grant and both of the other players. Like, no, no, they're really going to want you or need you there in the story. Well, more to the point, we need you there as a contrast because we've got two different sides of this moral spectrum. We've got two chaotic neutral characters, one of whom is a gutter rat thief, one of whom grew up as a gladiator fighting in slave pits and has never known kindness. It's a miracle that he's not chaotic evil. Mm -hmm. And he's finally free and is going to be like, so... Well, he's known some small measure of kindness, but not much. Right. But it's going to be, you know, so this is a fork... And you say you use this for food, not killing? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. It, it, that level of character. He's straight up Phytor the fighter. And the plan is to kind of have a redemption arc with him and grow him out of that, which is cool. And I'm excited. But we have characters who are not good by any classic definition. And another character who acts as a foil for them, and they as a foil for him, who is a classically good character character and embodies a lot of the virtues that these characters want to strive for. And that's great. That's so much better than, oh, you guys are making, you know, nasty gutter rat characters. I should make one too. So there's no differentiation in the party. Yeah. In in gaming as in podcasting, I function best as a foil for the other uh, participants, I guess. <clears throat> well, and they for you, because it'll yeah. be really interesting when they drag you into whatever they get into. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that, to me, that sounds very interesting, if, particularly if you have a character who is kind of the opposite. I mean, I don't know this character's background, but if you've got a character who is very good, not only can they serve as sort of a guiding star for the character who's seeking redemption, but also oftentimes the very good have never really encountered the things that turned nasty people into nasty people, and their goodness can take on a new dimension after having to confront it, you know? Uh, there's a difference between the person oh, yeah. who is naively good and the person who has confronted ugliness and has has stayed or has has changed their virtue to be more worldly. Yeah, it's the difference between a rookie cop and a veteran cop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Both of which happen to be honest. You know, one of of these people has a very idealistic view of the world and the other one has a very cynical view of the world, but they can both still be good. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, also (laughs) that. They're free agents. Last thing. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Last thing we should talk about is making sure that everything is consistent with the theme you've established. And this is both mechanics, which I think we've talked on to some Mm -hmm. degree, and also the other little motifs that come up in the game. If you have a very bleak story, putting some bleak motifs in the game that don't involve the player characters or little thematic elements that come up over and over again, little symbols of those elements, that's really important. And this is kind of classic, you know, high school level you know, English 101 stuff, but don't neglect it just because it's a role-playing game. Yeah. This would be a good place maybe to look to uh, Ravenloft, which is this boiled down really to it's like a very simple and effective form where Ravenloft is sort of the embodiment of the tone they're going for in a Ravenloft campaign, like all starting all the way back with the original module. And the iconography mm-hmm. is very obvious. It's very simple. Uh, but I think it's pretty effective when you walk into that setting Everything you're seeing, you know, the gothic elements, the fact that there's, you know, this Dracula-like vampire, you know, the hapless villagers, all that stuff tells you what kind of story you're in, which I think helps set up the idea of 
well, this is the kind of universe, the moral universe we're in when we're in Ravenloft. We're not expecting this triumphant superhero victory over Dracula. Right. And I think mechanics that reflect that, uh, the example you came up with is uh, the humanity system in Vampire. When when you're talking about shifting morality, and again, this is more character-based than a, a big look at the whole moral universe you've created, but the mechanics reflect how that moral universe impacts the character in play. Yeah. And what's permitted. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you think about humanity, I mean, humanity is a measure of the character, but it is measuring the character against a very clear indication of what it is to be human, what it is to be uh-huh. um, like moral and more than a monster. And that's the primary moral axis of the moral universe of vampire is there are people and there are monsters. And as a vampire, you're sliding down that hill and you're trying to hold on. That is the primary orientation morally of the game. And you're moving along that axis. So it's appropriate that you have basically one axis and, you know, you move very cleanly along it. And there are clear kind of sins listed at each stage of what will cause you to move up or down this. Whereas, you know, we see something more complex and but yet with less gradation in D&D where you've got like nine different alignments, but there's no like granular movement among them. You just pick the one that best describes you and there's right. And you and you stay there by and large or you might switch. But if you do, it'll be like that's for you to handle. There's no system for it. It's just, you know, at some point you might decide, oh, you've been acting more neutral good than lawful good, so maybe you'll switch there. So you've got, like... Well, and not only that, it'll only happen maybe once or twice a campaign at the most. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, most characters just stay one alignment the whole time. And then you compare that again to something like Karma Points, where it is, this is a moral universe where good is rewarded. Therefore, not only does this track how good you are, but you can then spend it to make good things happen for you. And then there's a list of things that get you karma. So we have a very tangible sense of, like... Not only is, you know, visiting kids in the hospital good, it is 10 points worth of good. It gives you 10 (laughs) points to make good things happen. Yep. Yeah. And like Legend of the Five Rings, uh, the honor system, Mm -hmm. another great example of this where you have uh, a mechanical system that tracks how honorable you are and in some cases what you are permitted to do. Because low honor characters can do things that honorable characters won't do. And the the reverse is also true. And it, I'd be interested in knowing, like, if a if a character who is of like high honor decides to do those things, do they lose honor? Do they lose face? Can that shift, or are they just like barred from they it do. magically? Uh, well, in, in some cases, it's you know this is something they wouldn't do by and large. But usually, it's so if you have a low honor, doing this deed doesn't cost you anything because that's what your low honor character would do. High honor characters lose honor points because they're doing something that is beneath them. Literally, it, it is something beneath them to do. Hmm. And the inverse is also true. If somebody has little honor, does something honorable, it is more meaningful than it is for somebody for whom that is expected. That's interesting. And I have to bring up here as a final example, because uh, as you know, our podcast contracts dictate that we must mention professional wrestling in every podcast we record. The old um, <laughs> no fact. The old uh, WWF role playing game has a really weird system of this that actually mirrors the morality of professional wrestling, where you're measured in fan support, right? Which is either positive or negative, <laughs> and it's the absolute value that determines how many like comebacks and cheap shots and all that kind of stuff you can do. So you're shooting for an extreme. If you're going to be a bad guy, be very bad. And that gives you a resource to spend. If you're going to be a good guy, be very good. It's the people in the middle who don't have a lot of resources to spend and are the lesser characters. 
So right. that's a situation where it's like the more extreme your morality, the bigger a deal you are in the story. But we're not really playing favorites with good and evil. It's just really good and really evil people fight. And then lower down the card, people who are a little good and a little evil fight. Yeah, you need a face, you need a mm-hmm. heal for any match. And the crowd reaction is what matters. The strength of that reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mass Effect 2 fell into that trap. Mm-hmm. Where you had to be so good or so evil in order to do anything truly meaningful in the game. Or so Paragon or so Renegade as it was. But it was basically good and evil. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you had to basically pick a side and stick with it perfectly from the beginning of the first game, or you were just going to be ineffective by the time you started getting later into the series. That's a classic Bioware trap, really. Yeah. I mean, that's been the case since KOTOR. Yeah, and if you are pl- yeah. if you do that in a tabletop role-playing game, the message your moral universe is sending is power equals consistency. Be a cartoon character and you're more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've set a new record not <laughs> only for uh, episodes Katrina will be on, but longest episode we've ever recorded. Oh my gosh. We're at over two and a half hours here. You're welcome. That's a thing. All of it good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all of it fantastic. I I mean, maybe we'll cut out some hummingbirds? Maybe. Maybe. No, I'm leaving everything in when I edit this. And I'm (laughs) actually looking forward to editing this episode. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, I'm really glad it's you doing it. Let me just say that. I get to hear this conversation again before (laughs) any of you (laughs) folks do. In fairness, I've got a friend's birthday, a kid's birthday, and a convention coming up. So I'm really <laughs> glad that you're doing this. Yep. Ah, uh, Chris, Katrina, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for sticking with us for so Absolutely. long. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This has been really fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we need to return the favor at some point, not just our, our usual Saturday morning slot. I say usual as if that's a regular <laughs> it thing. It will be. Um, okay, there we go. But, you know, it was, I don't know, something. We'll happily return the favor for thank you. Thank you. Uh, for the people who yeah. have, have been listening, this is going to be two episodes, but have, have listened here and, and discovered just why you guys are so awesome and why they should listen to the Gameable oeuvre of shows, the Gameable <laughs> podcasts, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Gameable Podcast. You can search for Gameable Podcast on iTunes. You can also go to gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com. And that's where you can find links to all of our old episodes if you want to catch up. And every new episode goes up there on the Tumblr. That's, for all those purposes, G-A-M-E-A-B-L-E, Gameable. So, uh, yeah, gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com, probably the best way to start. And we've got email. You can Absolutely. email us at gameablepodcast. Is it just gameablepodcast or is it one of the other ones? Yeah, if you wanted to email us, you could send us something at gameablepodcast at gmail.com. It's fun and to hear perhaps people. set up another two and a half hour episode. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Why not? We'll just make these the two and a half hour episode. People. That's yes. what we're here for. We're marathon podcasters. Uh, there you go. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic. Uh, listeners, thanks so much for sticking around through, in fairness, excellent analysis from Chris and Katrina and, I don't know, thoughts from us. You guys are great. You know it. We know it. Everybody knows it. (laughs) I'm glad someone knows it. And we were the first ones to talk Um, about wrestling, so you win the podcast. (laughs) Yes, actually, you are. And may it never happen again. (laughs) At least until we have them back on the next time. Yep. (laughs) Or until I admit that I actually watched wrestling as a teenager for a little bit. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having Look, us. it was the 90s. <laughs> Everybody was watching it. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for coming yep. on. 
From all of us here at Saving the Game and the Gameable Disney Podcast, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.